Hello and welcome back to Kvikminderpod, an Icelandic cinema podcast. I'm Rob Watts, and on this podcast, me and my good friend Ellie Cawthorn chat about Icelandic film. If you haven't already, take a listen to our short introductory episode where we reveal just how much or little we know and care about the country of Iceland. This week marks the start of our journey across the land of ice and fire as we begin to explore the types of stories being told in Icelandic film. Sadly, there are no volcanoes in this week's pick, Hruta or Rams from 2015, but there are a lot of sheep. So here we go. Hello, Ellie. Hello again. Hello, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Great. Well, we're going to kick things off this week, uh, the first week, with Grimo Haukanarsson's Rams. Have you seen this before? Well, I, not before this week, I haven't. And what a way to kick things off. I think it's a really good one, isn't it? It is. It's funny, that. <laughs> so it's all about Icelandic farmers and their sheep. Shall I start off with a synopsis? Please do. Okay, here we go. So, Rams tells the story of sheep farming brothers Gummy and Kiddy, who live on neighbouring farms, but for reasons never really explained, haven't spoken to each other for a very long time. When Gummy's prize ram wins a local contest, Kiddy inspects it and suspects that it may have scrapey, a fatal disease that means all the sheep in the valley must be destroyed. This is a disaster for everybody whose livelihoods depend on sheep farming but it might just be the catalyst for some sort of reconciliation. See, when you put it on paper like that, it doesn't quite capture the spirit of the thing, does it? It's about sheep diseases. Well, exactly. It's so weird because, I mean, I chose the film because it, it's sort of what people might imagine films set in Iceland are. Mm -hmm. It's about rural life, farming, sheep, and just sort of nature and old people. Um, but it's not. It's, that's not, I mean, it is about that, of course. I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised because I've, it had a lot more in it than I anticipated from a film about two grumpy old farts doing some sheep farming. Quite. It's, it is funny, isn't it? I, I mean, I, we yeah. said this in the intro, Icelandic humour is quite dark, to, almost to the point where you're not sure if anything is actually meant to be funny. Uh, mm. did, you, did you find this a comedy of any kind? Um... I wouldn't call it a comedy. I would say I found it a kind of moving, melancholic drama that occasionally had moments of humour in it. I wouldn't describe it as a black comedy. Yeah, I think this, I watched it again for this podcast and I'm sure that the first time I watched it, I was sort of just laughing along a little bit, just following it along, seeing what happens and then at the end sort of realised the dramatic weight of everything. But this time, I realise it's much more sad and melancholy, like you yeah, say. Yeah, I, I felt more than humour throughout this kind of ominous tension, I would say, which to me is not necessarily combined with humour. Sometimes it is, but definitely there was more of a ominous, melancholy vibe than a humorous vibe. But, but I definitely think there were moments, and I'm sure we'll talk about them later, that were pretty hilarious. So you were talking about that melancholic kind of tone, which you can see mm. just from the single shot uh, landscapes and shots of icy rivers and snowy valleys and all of this. But also the soundtrack is so evocative. It really, really creates this kind of atmosphere of loneliness and sadness that is really specifically Icelandic, I think. And I read an interview with the composer, whose name is Atli Urvason, who weirdly works in a lot of American TV, like those Chicago PD, Chicago Fire, long series. <laughs> really? Yeah, he does a lot of soundtrack work and in bigger kind of Hollywood films as well. So he was he became a producer on this and he just used very Icelandic instruments that would have been found in the area and at the time. Like, I think he said 
He used strings, an accordion, which is really evocative, yeah. I think. The, like an old man wheezing, isn't it? The accordion. It really which is. Which is very apt. And you don't hear it that much in general, in life and in film. But in here, it just, it's so slow and it's kind of a shrill noise, but it, I don't, I'm crap at describing music, but it's really kind of, it, it works perfectly for who we're looking at, where we are. Mm. Um, and just that combined, yeah, with the strings, the organ, and then the sparse piano as it gets colder and colder and colder and things are looking more and more bleak. I just think it's kind of the perfect soundtrack for the something set in that area of Iceland. Yeah, I agree. I thought that the soundtrack was was brilliant. And again, I know I keep saying this, but to me was really sinister somehow, mm. really ominous. I think the like long wheezes of the accordion yeah. were quite tense. Definitely. I think sinister, I wouldn't say, but ominous, definitely. Yes. It, they had that whole feeling of just like something is going to happen. You probably know what it is, but I'm going to keep reminding you that this is probably not going to be a good thing. Uh, <laughs> and just and that and it and reminiscent of the the loneliness and the sadness of just people living alone in the middle of nowhere with only sheep for company. It just works perfectly, doesn't it? Yeah. The setup: two brothers. They've not spoken for forty years. And that's never really explained, which is odd to begin with, considering they live on farms right next to each other. And they don't have any family except each other. They don't have any children, any wives. It's like the most lonely and isolating life you could possibly imagine. I mean, not that dissimilar to my life this past year or so. But <laughs> yeah, Do you know what? I was going to say that there's some serious lockdown vibes going on here. Like when they're, you know, sat at home alone doing a bit of woodwork, Puzzles, doing a yeah. jigsaw. Exactly. It really did have the kind of isolated feel that I feel at the moment, especially if people are listening to this in a year or so and they're just listening to this between massive parties, <laughs> might not feel so, but it definitely felt evocative of that yeah sure. and, i mean i didn't choose it for any of these reasons and the fact that the reason for the sheep culling is also a disease that can't be cured uh is a bit yeah a little bit too on the nose i thought but yeah. uh, uh, that's why i'm trying to focus on the humor it's a parable for our time and we didn't even know <laughs> i hope it's not going to end the same way no at least. I, I certainly hope not but yeah it is a terribly isolating life but this is kind of what Icelanders have been doing for over a thousand years. Sheep farming basically is their entire livelihood until kind of the 21st century, tw not 21st, the 20th century. Well, I did actually look up that there are how many sheep there are in Iceland. Okay. Do you know this? No. Do you want to have a guess? So there are three, so there are about 350-ish thousand people. How many sheep do you think there are? Three, 350,000 people. This is a, in 2050, which was, sorry, but that's the latest statistic <laughs> for you. That's okay. I'm going to guess something like one for one. So 350,000 oh, sheep. No, you're way off. What? It's 800,000. 800,000? 800, in 2015, there were more than double the amount of sheep as people what? in Iceland. More yeah. than double? Yeah. Well, I tell no lie. Okay. Well, I read that they were self-sufficient in meat, dairy and uh, eggs, which is pretty amazing for a small country like that. Uh, mm. But 800,000 sheep. I mean, mm. both Gummi and Kitty have a lot of sheep. I think by Gummi's perhaps slightly off count, he has 147, I think he says. So, I mean, 147 sheep per person. That's not right. What is it? Just over two per pop per person <laughs> yeah. in a population. Uh, yeah. But 147 per sheep farmer seems quite a lot. I don't know how many sheep most farmers normally have, but considering they haven't got anyone around them apart from the neighbouring farmers who we see them meeting up with once or twice, their only source of conversation or contact, yeah. huge, like actual physical contact, is the sheep 
Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because actually the contact with the sheep is, is until the end at least, more um, intense and more kind of emotive than their contact with the humans, other humans. Oh. So like you see them wrestling the sheep, bathing the sheep in the bath, kind of herding everybody. Um, whereas with the humans, you just see these kind of, I know we have those scenes in the social club, which to mm. me is like Icelandic Phoenix Knights. <laughs> but <laughs> does that not make you think of that? Yeah. But they were quite paired back, weren't they? They were quite kind of restrained. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting to note that as soon as Gummy loses in quite it's quite a and again, a kind of funny, kind of sad scene at the Ram judging comp petition like all the men are standing outside with their the bums of their proudest ram shoved out in front and they're all being judged which is inherently just a comical image and then he loses to his brother and so he goes straight outside and he's like right what makes your ram better than my ram and he notices something that may or may not be scrapey this horrible disease and he instantly takes his pride and joy back home and scrubs him. And you can see how much it means that this ram, Garpur, doesn't get ill. Uh, and how much yeah. he, and even later on, how much it's killing him to have to get rid of his entire flock. Heisi er undan kveik og góu frá Svínafelli. Hann fekk 84 stig. Í öðru sæti er Guðmundur Böðvarsson með hútingar. Garpur er af hinu fræga bólstaðakinni undan góða og byrtu. Hann fekk 86 stig. En ég vil taka það fram að það munaði mjög litlu á tveim eftir rútunum. Úslitin réðust á þykkt bækvöðans. Þessi rútar er af sama kýni og sigurvegarinn í ár er Kristinn Böðvarsson með rútins brota. Yeah, I mean, actually, I made a note of that, that when when his brother said to him, I know what you've got in the basement, he didn't, his first reaction wasn't to fight back or say, I don't know what you mean, or tackle his brother. His first reaction was to run to the sheep. Yeah, and guard And make them. sure that they were okay and guard them, exactly. Yeah. Like, the priority above everything else is always the sheep. Absolutely, especially at that point as well. Like, I think they say the Bolstather breed, which is their family's breed, if they all get killed in this slaughter, which is happening across the valley because, turns out, it is scrapey, if they destroy all of them, then that family has nothing going on beyond their brothers, which is, I mean, the end of a bloodline. And I know, obviously, yeah. the sheep aren't um, <laughs> the same. <laughs> family members. Yeah. No, but it was interesting in the fact that the two brothers, clearly neither of them have families or children. Mm -hmm. So they are the end of the bloodline. Yeah. And then it's almost like if the sheep also are the end of the bloodline, it's almost too much to to handle them being gone. Totally. I mean, they are basically their children. They're woolly, smelly, horned, <laughs> you know, children, I think. Uh, that line you mentioned when Gummy's like, I know what you've got in your basement. In a, most of the films I watch, that would be a fucking terrifying moment. Like in some horror yeah. film, if someone says, I know what you've got in the basement, it's probably not going to be some use and a ram. <laughs> yeah, this is exact. This is actually exactly what I was thinking. There was a very horror movie trope. There's always someone locked in the basement. And usually you want them to be found and you're like, please make a noise, escape. And in this case, it's like, don't hear them. Don't make a noise. No. And it, it, it sort of manifests itself as both funny and nerve wracking because 
He sat there with various visitors that come round, the vet, or uh, I can't remember who else comes round, the lawyer. And it's like, oh my God, please don't make a noise. I'll turn the radio on. And it's kind of funny. But then the second that someone hears a noise, you're like, oh no, please do not discover those rams in the basement or the sheep in the basement. It's it's really quite tense. Classic that that one ram just wanted to get making some babies that then uh, destroyed everything didn't it yeah it comes after i don't know whether it's christmas day or whatever when gummy lets scarpour in with the use and you know has sex with them all but he finds out that they're all pregnant i think garpour is just like oh did a pretty good job the first time i'm gonna get back <laughs> Give in it there. another go <laughs> i have to say as well i really didn't expect any like twists in this film i thought it was just gonna like go along at the kind of glacial pace that it was progressing because it is quite a slow burn but the point when he went down to the basement and the and you found out that he'd hidden the sheep there yeah i honestly was like oh, i'm sorry <laughs> what he's got the sheep in there i did not see that coming at all i was genuinely surprised i think that's Oh, that's a testament to to the filmmaking, especially because, like you say, it's such a sparse, slow moving mm. film. It's I mean, it's very static. If you if you look at the shots, they're very they're usually quite wide, but they're very still. And they're just mm. they just let the action play out. And then we move on. There's very, very rarely any music. There's almost no dialogue either. And so you're kind of just watching things, daily life happen. It might not be good, but, you know, it's happening. And then suddenly, boom. Oh, my God. Things have taken a turn. And also, did you feel, when we're talking about sheep in the basement, um, that I was like, I know logically I'm on the side of the um, ecologists or whatever they would be called, veterinary enforcers. The guys from Reykjavik who the farmers hate. Yeah, like, they are doing the right thing because this disease scraping needs to be controlled, doesn't it? Mm. But I'm like, that's my head. But my heart is like, save the sheep, let them escape. Even though if that could lead to massive ecological collapse later down the line, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Get the eight of them safe. True, because, yeah, because we don't know that any of the other sheep are infected, especially gummies. We don't know that those ones that he's kept in a basement are infected. But we do know that all the other farms are potentially infected. And we know that other farms in other valleys have had it up to three times. Uh, so we, mm. so when those sheep go off, you're sort of like, well, if you do save them, yeah, down the line, you might just be bringing it back and killing everyone who's left. It's a bit, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, I guess. So definitely as well with the coronavirus parallels, it's like that thing of, it's probably fine, <laughs> but you're not really sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess at least, I mean, it might be everyone's livelihoods, but it's not their actual lives. So that mm. does that make it better? Well, this is the, this is the debate, isn't it? Hmm. The I, parallel. I didn't think that we'd have so many... Um, contemporary parallels no Who knew? no but let's not fixate on those no, no. let's not uh, talking of the sheep though so i was uh, i was reading some interviews with the director grimo haukanasa and so a lot of the people involved were part of sheep farming families growing his up auntie and uncle was were sheep farmers, i think so yeah right? and he worked on the farms when he was in his teens so did sigurdur sigurd jonsson who plays gummy uh, in, and also, weirdly... That's why he's so good at handling around. Well, quite. Those. I think all the act, both actors, uh, Sigurd Thursigur Johnson and Theodor Julioson, they both went to the farm early and got hands-on and sort of did a bit of farmer's kind of... Uh, Method acting. Yeah, a bit, the, a bit kind of um, Daniel Day-Lewis. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, apparently they're both big, like they're two of the biggest names in Icelandic film acting. Obviously, as we said, there aren't many actors, but they are some of the big names. Also, while we're talking about relations, that farm that they filmed on is actually the composer's 
mum's farm or she was born on that farm or something, which is mad. It's all, everyone I think is tied together. But the thing that I enjoyed the most while we're on the farm and the sheep is that they had to actually find the right kind of sheep to use. So what is in the most pretty sheep? Because they were very beautiful sheep. They were good looking sheep. And I'm not, you know, I don't know sheep very well, but yeah, they were pretty fluffy. And and I think actually Icelandic sheep are, I don't know if it's unique, but they're certainly famed for having two sort of layers of wool, which is why they get, they stay so warm and why the wool is so good to use as yarn, I believe. Something like that. Wow. But so there's all these different farms with different kind of bloodlines of Icelandic stock, which has been there for 1100 years. But they had to go around like checking at different farms whether the sheep were actually able to work with the actors and with the film crew around. <laughs> they needed the right temperament sheep, you know. Chilled sheep. Yeah. So the director, <laughs> the director actually said it was harder to cast the sheep than it was the actors. And so, yeah, they just uh, they they just went round and to see who which sheep could actually handle Amazing. handle all this noise and all this traffic and. Yeah, and just get played with. And I think they, just the ones they settled on were actually so docile, they'd be waiting for their own farmer to come and sort of give them a kind of scratch behind the ear and stuff. God, that makes me feel even more sad about the thought of them getting scrapey. Yeah. Um, I have to say, like, that throughout this, there's one thing just in my mind. Have you ever read all seen in version of Far From the Madding Crowd, the Thomas Hardy novel. You know what? I haven't. So I'm a big Victorian literature nerd. And um, it's, I mean, it's a its a brilliant book, yeah. but it's like heavily based on sheep-based trauma. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, if anybody is like a hundred and whatever years on, worried about spoilers, maybe just tune out for a sec. But the whole thing starts where this guy, um, Gabriel Oak, so he's a he's a shepherd and his flock, his, his uh, sheepdog accidentally in the night pushes his flock over the edge of a cliff and he finds them all. So it's his whole livelihood. He finds them all dead on the beach oh below. God. It's like truly, truly traumatising read. Um, and then there's another scene as well with um, sheep bloat where all the sheep get this bloating disease because they, well, they eat this poisonous plant. And Gabriel Oak, the shepherd yeah. of fame before, has to come around with a big, um, like, jabby needle thing and stab them all in the stomach, oh like, pop God. them like balloons. He, like, pops them like a balloon and then the gas from the bloat is released and they just get up and run off. But anyway, oh, so they're so okay. They get like... stabbed with a knife and then they yeah. run away. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know about the science behind mm. it, but all I could think of was was that really. And being honestly, those scenes with the sheep somehow stayed in my mind so long because there's something so innocent about sheep. Yeah. And I think that's something you see in this film as well. When they, you know, when um, Gummy has to kill his flock and they're just so like unaware and they're kind of just cozying up to him. Yeah not knowing anything that's going to go on. Oh, and he's, and he's something so horrifying about it. So sad when he talks to the one you. He's like, I'm I'm so sorry. And then he goes and yeah. he just he takes his gun. I mean, can you imagine having to shoot 147 sheep in the head? I mean, there are obviously there is a, that is a job for a lot of people. But mm. I could I mean, I couldn't do that. No, especially not when they've been your your babies and you've had them since they were bought, you probably pulled them out as lambs. Part of the whole farming on your own thing, I don't know how they would do 
all of the work. I mean, it clear it seems to just be a sheep farm, but still, that's a lot of work. Because like, especially in this day and age, all parts of the sheep are used. So the wool gets taken off and sold to be used as wool for those amazing jumpers that they wear. The locker pacer. Yeah. I I do have my own. Just just <laughs> FYI, I would wear it while we record, but it's so hot that. I don't think my flat would ever it's get cold It's because of enough. those two layers, those two layers of the sheep there wool go. there. Yeah. Um, so they use the wool. They use the meat. Um, again, you see Gummy eating lamb broth, lamb soup or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, I had an amazing lamb soup when I visited Gulfoss, the waterfall, which is on the Golden Circle tour. And uh, it was oh, it was absolutely delicious. How can you say such a thing after seeing all those yeah, very I'm, cute sheep? I know, but they were sheep. They weren't lambs. I mean, they, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they eat the, the mutton as well. But they, they use the meat, they use the the wool, and, well, I guess they use the... Is there anything else? <laughs> they probably use some of the milk, maybe. Sheep cheese? I don't know. Maybe. It doesn't sound great. I know. Either way, they try. I think they use as much of it as they can, and you can see that on screen. Um, so... I think there's something to be said for, okay, he's raising a lot of sheep to be used ultimately for other purposes. But when you're killing them for no reason or, they, or for yeah. a reason that means they can't ever be used again, that's a bit, that's, yeah, that's the worst thing, isn't it? It's very, very sad. Yeah. But on that note, should we talk about some of the funnier moments? Yes, let's. What were your favourite? Well... I I mean, it starts off with a moment that is very, it's sort of, it, I mean, it's probably the most darkly comic moment that sort of sets the tone for the rest of the film. So Gummy discovers the dead sheep in Kitty's field. Mm. And there's one other sheep sort of standing around, just barring away. And he picks that one up and he just chucks it in Kitty's front door and walks <laughs> away. And I was like, yeah. that is amazing. What? What? Why have you done that? Sheep inside are inherently quite funny, aren't they? When the sheep's in the bath, I found that <laughs> amusing. Yeah, just scrub it away at his, his horns. <laughs> and they're running through the house, just like scuttling on the hard floor. Yeah. <laughs> I also enjoyed the dog delivering specifically an invoice oh, was the one that I found funny. That dog delivering those is brilliant. Yeah, and like you say, that moment when Kitty... Uh, He's heard what Gummy's done and and reported this incident of what he thinks is scrapey to the vets. And Kitty comes around with his gun and shoots him in the windows. I mean... <laughs> shoots him in the windows sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> no, he doesn't shoot him in the eyes. I know they're, they're the windows of a soul, right? Uh, but no, he shoots, he shoots the window because he's so pissed off. And then Gummy just sits down and casually writes him a bill for how much he owes for the for the glass <laughs> yeah. and stuff, which is fabulous. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. The other moment, see, I, I think it was intended as a comedy moment, but for me, it was a moment of true horror. And I actually wrote down the word diabolical in capital letters was the cutting of toenails with giant <laughs> scissors. Yeah. Something that should never be allowed to happen. <laughs> it's so disgusting, but also they, hilarious. Uh, yeah. I got that it was funny, but it offended <laughs> me so much that I couldn't find it. So. I think a lot of people don't like feet anyway, let alone oh, overgrown gosh. toenails on an old man. And he's just oh, got those big pair, that pair of big black scissors. It's like, oh, you'd make one slip. You might just cut your toe off. Well, I mean, they were both quite kind of gross in their own ways, weren't they? Yes. And I think that's that whole thing of they're just individ two old men lived on their own for 40 years, lived in the same house for 40 years. Like you can see in everything about their lives. They're so they're focused on their farming, which is their livelihood, that the houses haven't changed since they were kids, probably their clothes are all holy. You know, there was probably their mum who knitted their jumpers. The wallpaper is, I mean, the wallpaper is fucking amazing, but it is mm. clearly not modern. Just everything about their lives is so solitary and they don't really care. And I 
think that's just that's kind of a male thing anyway but they're at that age especially in the film where that's not really a consideration but don't you think as well it's all part of this thing which we kind of mentioned before a bit but of the the lost or world or the dying world you know it's a world of the past they, mm-hmm. they live in the past don't they they're not keeping up with the times which is reflect like it's probably the central theme of the whole thing isn't it but it's written into every bit of set design or costume and everything yeah and and in those small interactions when they meet with the other farmers and there's the younger couple i mean they're not young but they're i don't know 30s or 40s and basically they've just gone well since we get paid for all the sheep that get destroyed we're just gonna fuck off now because this isn't the life we want it's lonely we're losing money and you know two years without sheep what the f- what are we gonna do? So they're just like, okay, we'll move on. We'll be we'll have to we'll modernize and we'll just go. They don't know where they're gonna go. Most likely, they'll end up in Reykjavik, I guess. But it definitely is that sense of the kind of romantic old nostalgia of the old ways. The sheep aren't just sheep, are they? They're kind of the old life. That was a very Mark Kermode of me. It's not about sheep. <laughs> it's a, you know, the sheep aren't sheep. They're a symbol of the old way of life. Of course, and they? that term "old way" is exactly what the director describes it as. He's he's talking about that traditional Icelandic way of life, which you know, like I said at the start, is has only relatively recently been taken over. And I, mm. you know, there must be there aren't that many people, but there's so many more jobs available that kids on farms don't necessarily want to hang around and be sheep farmers having said that i did read about one icelandic lady who when she was in her 20s went to america to become a model but came back because she wanted to work <laughs> on her family sheep farm and now she's one of the one of the kind of foremost sheep farmers in iceland but i think you're right it's that that kind of dichotomy of old versus new And in Iceland, that's a much more recent thing, I think. Mm. And, you know, you mentioned the scene with the with the young couple. Oh, perhaps it's a different scene. But when they're talking about all the farmers are getting together and saying, what should we do? Oh, in the in the the house. Yeah. And one of them says, oh, well, what are you going to do? Just import hormone sheep, Mm. I think they say, from abroad. And it's this kind of sense of it's very particular to those sheep, you know, like those. It's like what we were saying about the the brothers um, flock that if they lose them, then it's the end of a bloodline, like that they can't just replace them with new sheep. It's not the same. It's kind of a transplanted artificial sterile thing, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And I think I know that the, the officials, whatever you want to call them, veterinary officials are, they're sterile because they are literally coming in sterilizing mm-hmm. things, but they are ve- they are very sterile, aren't they? In the way that they're shown, and they're very kind of um, grey suited executive um, corporation. They're like one big body, really, rather than yeah. They and they've got no sort of understanding of what it means to these people to be like, oh no, but we'll just replace a sheep for a sheep. You're like, well, mm. that's that's not really what it's, it's not the about. Point. Like there's an honour to being an Icelandic sheep farmer, which they don't get. And I think it's quite nicely demonstrated in the scene when they're all sort of suited up in their green hazmat suits and they turn up en masse to to Gummy's barn and they kind of just walk in like these aliens, like like a scene from some some sort of sci-fi horror film and just like, you, I mean, you look like the aliens that you are in this landscape. Like, you belong in the city. You don't belong here amongst these huge valleys of just pasture. And, yeah, you don't know what you're dealing with, really. We know there's a disease, but think about it beyond that. And Katrin, I think she's like the head vet. She, I think she has more of an understanding, but at the same time, she's just she's doing her job, isn't she? <laughs> Ég vil 
So let's talk about Gummy and Kitty. So I really wanted to know what had happened between them. What's your theory? Uh, well, I, I don't know if I came up with a theory before I read that the film was based on, well, not based on, but sort of based on a true story. Uh, which apparently is quite common. So there were two brothers who I think loved the same lady, same woman, and they fell out over her. Obviously, neither one of them stayed with her or she didn't stay with them more like. And so really? after that sort of argument, they they chose not to speak to each other again. And that was that. But apparently that's quite a common thing. I don't know how common common is when you're talking about a population of... 350,000 people, not most... It's not that many women to choose from. <laughs> no, and even less who are farmers or want to be a farmer's <laughs> yeah. wife or whatever. So I I mean, I don't have any theories of my own. That's something. I know that the director said that he did write a sort of backstory that the actors could read. Oh, really? But they he never wanted it explained. Did you... Yeah, it was kind of classy to not explain it, I thought. Would it have sort of helped i don't think it would have really no i'm not sure it would have done and i think it might have even taken away from the the kind of universalness of it yeah it's kind of it's quite like a parable the whole thing isn't it you don't need to know the ins and outs but having said that if i had a theory well i was like firmly on gummy's side in this argument Mm. i know that we're kind of given his perspective and we see things primarily through his eyes sure but kitty just seemed like a bit of a knobhead didn't he yeah i think it's interesting isn't it because they've both lived on the surface at least until the end yeah they've both basically lived the same life for 40 years but they've gone off in sort of separate paths not massively different but it looks like gummy has managed to keep his head on his shoulders whereas kitty's sort of descended into alcoholism because he can't handle it and because he hasn't got any support gummy's sort of stayed away and not he he there's an argument to say he could have helped kitty much more over the years but i feel like he's always from what we're shown he's always actually looking out for kitty so when he's so this is my interpretation you may disagree but when kitty wins the prize gummy is initially yeah he's annoyed whatever but the second he finds out that there might be scrapey. He's concerned. He's concerned about his brother's flock. And I think that's because he's concerned about his brother. And he doesn't He doesn't tell them because he wants his brother's best ram to be killed, in my mind. He tells them because he's scared about this disease getting out and he is concerned. Is that not how you read it? <laughs> no, that's, I pretty, that's pretty much exactly how I thought. Uh, but what does that mean for... Why... If they care, if they both care enough, and obviously mm. it does seem like Gummy cares more, but we don't know because it's not told from Kitty's point of view. What the hell were they arguing about? Because it can't have been that bad that they still cared enough to make sure the other one didn't die of, you know, yeah. frostbite or whatever. Because well, that's you... a funny scene as well. In my mind, rather than like a um, a big fight over a woman or whatever, it's like a generally fractious relationship that has disintegrated we also as well we learn don't we that um gummy says or or we find out somehow that their mother didn't want kitty to inherit their father their father didn't want kitty yeah oh their father didn't want basically it sounded like he didn't believe that kitty could do it well exactly so in my mind kitty is just this kind of bit of a troublemaker that then is maybe pushed out and then becomes bitter and it slowly unravels rather than a big break yeah maybe i mean it's 40 years down the line exactly 40 years is a long time for a relationship to to slowly get worse and worse and more 
entrenched, isn't it? But what I've something I did find funny was that like if you think about siblings and the way you, you argue with them, mm-hmm. even though they're what in their sixties, seventies. 60s? I don't know. I don't know how old they are. I actually haven't checked how old the actors are either, but they certainly look a lot older than they do without a beard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyway, however old they are, when they argue, they argue like little children, how you argue with the siblings in that, you know, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to have to send you a note because I won't talk to you. And then when they wrestle, when Kitty comes and pins Gummy down, it's a bit violent, Mm. but he's pinning him down in the way that like you do with when your kids fighting yeah totally not me and my sister but you know some people <laughs> well, if, I, if, that, if that was me and my brother i'd probably be the one face down in the dirt um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah no i think you're right but then that extends that also means that you can have those funny moments between the two where it's like mm. we don't hate each other that much that I will let you open the gate and just drive straight through on my quad bike. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's like That's the good. tiniest little moment, but like mm. it's, it could it could piss Kitty off and it probably does, but it's not a big thing. But yeah, it's a very brotherly thing, I think, that kind of moment. They were definitely kind of presented as two different, two kind of polar opposites or sides of the, different sides of the coin, weren't mm-hmm. they, in that? Gummy was quiet and and thoughtful and kind of hesitant, and Kitty was boisterous and kind of rambunctious and santery and loud. Santery, <laughs> because he <laughs> like has the white beard. Bad Santa, <laughs> the kind of Santa that you don't want to sit on his lap. Yeah, and I think actually, when Gummy runs to the basement to hide after that first initial. Is it, is it when he shoots the window? I think it is. And he just immediately yeah. runs to the basement. I think he knows deep down that actually Kitty could do worse. Oh, and he's sort think? of scared for his own, maybe not life, but he does. He is concerned that he might get injured in some way. Do you mm. think? Possibly, yeah. I guess he does seem quite out of control, doesn't he? In mm. terms of like drinking and guns which are never a great mix no i don't know what the status of guns in iceland is i'm pretty sure i mean i'm sure farms do have them but the Mm. police uh, i don't think the police carry guns i don't think guns are really a thing in iceland or maybe they got introduced recently but i think maybe on farms they're quite common aren't they yeah for hunting all sorts for just for getting rid of you know foxes or whatever might be eating the chickens or various other there, I mean, there aren't any other animals in Iceland, as far as I'm aware, that could actually <laughs> kill any farm animals. I think the Arctic fox is the only native animal. They're not going to be bothering with a sheep, are they? Uh, probably. I don't know. I, I, you know what? I have no idea. <laughs> there are no foxes in this film anyway. Um, but I think they both, ultimately, they both care about the sheep a great deal. They just do it in different ways because... When the vets turn up to get rid of Kitty's flock, he's so mad. It's not just that he doesn't have a livelihood. It's that he's losing his only form of contact. And so, yeah, I think that's they both have that in common. And that is what leads to this kind of reconciliation towards the end. Should we talk about the end? Yes, let's Mm. go on. Well, the first thing is the snowstorm. Yeah, the snowstorm. What? How did you find it? How did I find a snowstorm? I yeah. felt like I did not want to be there. Yeah. And we should say that this is at the point when the the vet has heard noises in the 
basement. What a little, what a little snitch, Jamie. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's definitely his job. But <laughs> so he's heard the noise, and they managed to smuggle the sheep into Kitty's farm, uh, hidden. I mean, the fact that then everyone goes looking for the sheep and they don't think to look in Kitty's farm is weird and hilarious. Yeah. But okay, I guess they figure these brothers hate each other, so why would they help each other? Um, and then they end up taking them up to the mountains when I think it's the policeman he just hears a rogue kind of and he looks out the window and they're just all standing right in front of the window (laughs) yeah which is excellent so yeah they take them up to the highlands don't they and that snowstorm that they encounter is cold windy terrifying because to me it felt like it was kind of always a doomed mission and that they knew that this was kind of a doomed mission and it's like fuck it, let's go out with a bang kind of situation. Is that how you you saw it? Or do you think they really thought, we'll get him over the hill and then it'll actually all be fine and we'll come back and have a cup of tea? Uh, I I think I'm one of those moviegoers who just lets the whole thing wash over me and I don't actually think forwards to what I want or expect to happen. So I think the first time I watched it anyway, I thought, yes, that's it, just... Yeah, going to get them up that mountain. They'll be free. I, I mean, obviously I had no idea what was then going to happen to Gumi and Kitty, but I thought, yeah, they're going to get, they're going to hide the sheep and at least they'll be free. I, I didn't really think beyond that. It's like a Thelma and Louise moment. You know, they're coming for us. There's yeah. nowhere else to go. Let's just leap off the morass kind of thing. I, I, I like that interpretation a lot. Uh, but I also think the way it actually ends, that's not <laughs> yeah. really, I don't think that's the case. How did you, what do you think happened at the end? Did they die? Did the sheep die? Did they survive? Well, they said if the sheep get high enough in the mountains, they're rugged Icelandic sheep. They can deal with that horrible snowstorm. And if they're they quite get... close to the ground. True. They're not going to get blown away, hopefully, anyway. I think if they get far enough away that they won't be found. So that's positive. I think the sheep are safe. Okay, good. But then the fact that they lo- the brothers lose each other for so long and somehow Kitty manages to find Gummy, I think is quite remarkable because people get lost in the Icelandic highlands all the time. Like I, I say all the time. It's in a lot of the books I've read. So I know that that happens and often the bodies don't get found ever or at least for a very long time and that's usually by chance so the fact that kitty found gummy at all is quite remarkable have you ever been in a, a white out yes because i yeah i have <laughs> i'm sure show off my middle class credentials here but skiing i've been in in oh, a white out where was this and well i've been in a couple actually one was in um in switzerland and it was just the most terrifying thing I think I've ever been in. Were you on your skis? Yeah, I was on on skis, but then I took them off because I couldn't handle it. Sure. And um, <laughs> it was basically where the not in quite such a, a storm as that, but still a storm, and where the edge of the cliff and the sky looked exactly the same. So you couldn't until you're right at the edge see it, and it really was like horribly disorientating in a way that you've never experienced so this really like was not triggering for me but you know (laughs) I got I I really sensed the peril big time yeah well the second that they end up in the whiteout you're like well how at this point I don't know how you're going to find your way home at all so it reminded me I would go I'll tell you my anecdote anyway because it's Iceland related (laughs) also um, and these kind of things happen there because the weather is so changeable in Iceland. Like it will go from bright blue sky sunshine to a full on snowstorm in the blink of an eye. And roads will be shut and people will be told not to leave the town they're in. And so I was driving there a couple of years ago in December on my own in a four by four. I'm on the main road, the number one, the ring road. And driving along, driving along, oh, there's some snow. 
within five minutes it was so thick i couldn't see a thing and the clouds were white it was the fields were white because it was already it had already snowed Mm. the roads were white the yeah everything was white and the only things that helped me drive were the yellow markers on the road i thought i can't stop because this road is only two lanes wide and there is no sign there's no hard shoulder so i'll just drive and drive and people occasionally you're told not to drive in whiteouts but i didn't have a choice because it hit but people were occasionally driving past and that was terrifying and i just (laughs) remember sitting in the car hands on the steering wheel grip like with my nails digging into my palms eyes wide open just slowly just my eye they wanted to close it was i was focusing that much and it's it's absolutely terrifying when you don't know where you're going i mean i wasn't thankfully i wasn't in an unknown place in the highlands not in a car (laughs) yeah i can only imagine how much worse it would be to be in the middle of nowhere with no protection at all yeah so not not triggering but certainly reminded me of my own icelandic whiteout experience and then of course i got stuck in a town a town called hup spelled h-o-f with a little accent on the okay. O. Got stuck there for like an extra two days because no one was allowed to drive on any of the roads. So that oh. was interesting. Shout out to Hup. Shout out to Hup and my friends who I met who I met at the uh, the only youth hostel in town. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was good times. But I think um, what I realised as well in this ending was you don't ever see two old men embracing... Two old, topless, bearded men embracing, do you, in pop culture? That's not and, something um, often, no, that I would often <laughs> see in any I never realised that I never saw it until um, until this moment. No, it's funny, isn't it? Because actually we see them both naked during the film. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> At various, various moments. They're both usually in the bar. It's comedy nudity. Exactly, comedy nudity. And then we get to the end and it's like, oh no, now this is like full on... Dramatic. Tragedy nudity. Exactly. And they're they're clinging to each other for dear life at this point. And it's like, I love that contrast. It's like, ha ha ha, oh fuck. I think it's also nice in that they're like role reversal in that throughout we've seen Gummy trying to look after Kitty in some ways, you know, even when he's just putting a blanket on him when he's naked or, mm-hmm. you know, doing all these kind of things. And then at the end we see Kitty trying to look after gummy and that they do you know deep down love each other care about each other yeah each other to survive it just takes that extra extra bit more drama for kitty to show to show it not just oh my brother's drunk i'll look after him it's oh no my brother's about to die maybe i should do something (laughs) i saw that as um no coming back from that to me they have to have died because Otherwise, we would have been shown them being saved or something like that. I don't think that the director, as an Icelander, would have given us that, even if that's what he believes. It would have been too twee. Very twee and kind of unnecessary. I'm a big fan of the kind of open ending. I mean, I'm a Mm. huge David Lynch fan. And I mean, a lot of the time I don't understand anything that's going on. But uh, I mean, that is probably true. But I I do like a film... (laughs) when it's made well that leaves the ending open for you to interpret not just we didn't know how to end this let's mm. just you know let's let let people make what they will of it so what did you think happened at the end no i'm probably with you though yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think i mean okay the the snow might the the whiteout might clear at some point who knows how long that would take and even when it does they're still at the top of a mountain with a, I don't know whether they'll be able to get the quad bike out easily or even find it. And then they've got to get back. I think it's just, it's kind of a lost cause because no one knows where they are. I think as well, it's, um, if you see it as kind of a, a classic tale or a parable, you know, about reconciliation and two brothers coming back together and it needs some kind of epic denouement, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And if it's if it had just been, they saved the sheep and <laughs> they both had two years compensation and then got some more sheep, it's not got the narrative clout 
of they they sacrifice themselves on the altar of progress sure i mean i guess it it could have had a similarly or even worse outcome in that they could have saved the sheep which we already think has happened in this in the film but they might have made it back to their farm and they're like okay well we've got two years without any sheep what do we do kill ourselves <laughs> maybe maybe it's nicer that they died i'm glad that that wasn't well, the ending oh, me too i mean sometimes i get a bit yeah i go a bit dark but i think it's nice to see that if they are going to die they've died together yeah and that their legacy will live on through it's their quite sheep a noble death yes way. totally and we know that the sheep are preggers so the bloodline will <laughs> I continue about that i mean that's that's the big positive to all of this, provided they don't have Scrapey. Uh, mm. Then that's great. Then they'll just keep, they'll carry on. I, mean, I don't know whether any farmers will find them and take them in or whether they'll just live as wild sheep. They'll be the feral sheep of Iceland. Yeah, of which I'm assuming there are none. <laughs> you're slightly optimi- more optimistic about the sheep's future than I am. But I do think it was a great, ending and very evocatively shot in you know close up them shivering and their skin all mottled it well yeah it was quite nice because it starts it's such a personal story but a lot of the film is shown kind of these wide landscape shots that have as the film goes on get more and more wintry and desolate and just unforgiving looking that by the end, you need a return to that kind of close style of filmmaking. In the whiteout, especially, it's kind of handheld and it's like, yeah, we're with them now. We're not just observing, we're actually there. And that final shot of the two of them that's up close and just like, yes, these are our, these are who we've been rooting for the whole time. We're going to leave with them. I think it's, it, whether it's sad or happy, it's, it's nice, isn't it? Mm. I have a nice fact about that scene. Uh, it was minus 15 degrees C when they recorded uh. that. And because there were no stuntmen in Iceland, they both did, <laughs> they did all their own stunts. So up, so I think it was a mixture of kind of filming up on the mountain in a snowstorm, mm. which, was a, which happened by chance. And then also they did a bit with kind of fans and shit. But that kind of thing is, I guess, harder to come by in Iceland and, I don't know, kind of awkward to try and, get down to the farm and where they were filming and stuff. So most of it was just those two stalwart actors just like freezing their bollocks off up a mountain. Oh, God. Fair play. Good for them. Good for them. They learned how to wrangle sheep. They got naked in the cold. You can't say fairer than that. So one final point, I just want to talk about the geography of of the films that we talk about, because this is an Icelandic cinema podcast and the films that we're going to look at are shot all over. I mean, it's noticeable that this wasn't shot in the only place most people we familiar with, Reykjavik. This was shot actually in a place called the Barthadalur Valley, which is up in the northeast of Iceland, somewhere between Akuri, which is what they call the city in the north, which is actually smaller than like a little town in England. <laughs> um, and it's somewhere between there and a place called Mivatn, or I, I, that's an approximation of the pronunciation, which is where they shot the, uh, I believe, the Egret and Jon Snow love scene in Game of Thrones. Oh, really? Another naked in the snow scene. Quite. So it's shot up there um, in on a real farm, on a real sheep farm, in an area that's all sheep farmers and because it's so remote everyone had to stay up there because i think it would probably be like mm. you know the best part of a day of driving 
to get from there back to Reykjavik. So they all stayed up there. And most of the extras were people who lived there. The guy who reads the poem at the prize giving is he a local... looked like a kind of ancient wizard from lord of the rings and he was so poetic i feel like he probably yeah, he was brilliant. Write, wrote, writes those kinds of words all the time so he was local most of the extras were local i just thought that was a really nice thing that actually doesn't really happen that much in british and american cinema you know people get flown in from either country for whatever for a single line often so uh so i thought that was nice and a shout out to one of my favorite scenes, actually, because uh, coffee is such an integral part of Icelandic culture. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant where one of the other farmers, the really big guy with the beard, he, yeah. he turns up with a sheep, a sheep carcass for gummy. And he's like, here you go. It's Christmas. Have this sheep, which another farmer's donated in all its goodwill. I've driven over here to you. Uh, <laughs> Merry Christmas do you have any coffee? Because it's really cold. And I've driven all the way here and he's just like, nah. He's like, <laughs> yeah. no, do you have anything stronger? Nah. And he definitely has both, but he's so concerned about his sheep. He's just like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Anyway, I thought that was funny. <laughs> I enjoyed that too. Amazing. So any final thoughts? Well, I would just say that this was much more engrossing than I think any film about two old men, one of whom <laughs> cuts their toenails with the world's biggest scissors, <laughs> has any right to be. And found it quite Shakespearean, I would say. Yeah, actually, that moment up on the mountains, very King yeah. Lear, isn't it? Very King Lear, mm. very King Lear indeed. Um, so, yeah, thank you for enlightening me and bringing it to my attention no problem it's been fun to chat through you know our first Icelandic film on this little mm -hmm. journey uh and I yeah like you said I love that film too I'm glad that I got a chance to rewatch it and talk about it so what have we got in store next so I think I mentioned it in our little intro episode it's going to be a film called 101 Reykjavik which is directed by Baltasar Kormakur uh and it's kind of the film that kick-started this 21st century exploration of modern Iceland I thought that would be kind of a fun contrast with this film which very much looks at traditional Icelandic mm. ways of life and so yeah this one's set in the city it's named after the street where everything happens the nightlife uh, and you know the shopping and pretty much it's where all the tourists go straight away as well so I thought let's look at that so I just have one question for you, okay. which is, are there any sheep in it? Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to say no. <gasps> yeah. And it's not even about old people. Oh. I know. I'm not sure if I want to come back now. Well, you're going <laughs> to. And she will. Ha <laughs> ha. Because next week, as I mentioned, we'll be heading down south to the city as we discuss Baltasar Kormakur's 101 Reykjavik for the year 2000. Now this is somewhat harder to get hold of, but the DVD is out there, so it's worth checking any local rental shops or libraries. If you're in Bristol, like me, then I know 20th Century Flicks have it, but if anyone else would like to borrow a copy, just drop me a DM on Twitter, where we're at kvikmindapod, that's K-V-I-K-M-Y-N-D-A-P-O-D, and hit follow while you're there. We're on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual podcast platforms, so please subscribe and leave us a lovely review at Apple if you don't mind. See you next week.
Tack och bless. Thanks and goodbye.